Hi, and welcome to the first Philosophy of Bitcoin podcast. My name is Kuhn Swinkels, and with me here today is Vijay Boyapati. Fiji and I both have a uh, background in Austrian economics, and we've also been interested in Bitcoin for uh, quite a few years. And we think that the emergence of Bitcoin has uh, demonstrated that there are some serious problems for the, um, the standard Austrian account of the uh, origins and nature of money. And so that's what we'll be uh, talking about uh, today. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is exciting. I don't know of anyone else who has really uh, delved into the details of what implications the emergence of Bitcoin has for uh, Austrian theory for, uh, on the origin of money. So this is this is cool. Yeah, and I think it's also just uh, useful to discuss the Austrian view on the origins of money because it's actually very similar to the mainstream view that uh, that you will find in economics textbooks. Uh, I think they pretty much all agree that money arises on the market out of a, a state of barter through an invisible hand process in order to solve the problem of the coincidence of wants. So I think they, they pretty much all agree that money is uh, not a creation of the state, uh, but something that emerged on the market. I don't, that's interesting you say that. I'm not sure I'm, I'm in, I entirely agree with that. There are, there are two views, I think, primary views on the origin of one, money. One is essentially the Austrian view, and the other is the chartalist view, which is that money comes about just because the state wants it to come about. The state says, we want to have taxation, and it's going to be in, denominated in our money, and that creates the original demand for money. Uh, that that view of the origin of money is it's essentially a state-based creation and that money isn't uh, a creation of the market. Um, those are the two primary uh, theories that I'm aware of for the origin of money, but I, I agree with you that um, the, the Austrian theory is very commonly taught. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree that those are the two main theories, but... Um... I think that only the first one, or so the, the Austrian style theory, is something that you will find in, in economics textbooks, in, in mainstream economics textbooks anyway. I think the other theory is um, more popular among some heterodox economic schools of thought and anthropologists and, and historians, but I don't think it's something that you will find in economics textbooks. Yeah, you, you might be right. I, I guess I haven't gone through enough college textbooks to know which theory is dominant, um, but I, I'm just aware that there is this other theory, which is that money doesn't come about as a market phenomena. Yeah, and I think there's also a third kind of uh, theory, um, one that doesn't see money as something that emerges out of the market or is created by the state, but is something that emerged out of other kinds of social practices, like gift-giving, ritualistic practices, making offers to the gods. But I, I don't know enough about that theory to uh, describe it in uh, much detail. And it's also, yeah, it's not the topic of our discussion right now. Um, what is the topic of our discussion is the Austrian theory. And I think we both for a long time thought that it was essentially the, the correct theory. But recently we have uh, stumbled upon some problems, and especially in the light of Bitcoin. And we now think that we uh, actually have some bad news for uh, the Austrian theory. <laughs> That's right, we do have bad news. But I guess I want to say first about the Mengarian theory is that it 
it posits that money comes about in a certain way that we we really have no ability to go back in time and see, you know, there was a village of people and they were trying to trade with each other, but they were having the problem of the coincidence of wants. And so they, each individual was thinking, I need something more marketable to be able to trade my apples for your oranges. We can't go back and observe to see whether this is what is what happened. Um, and it's very different to what we can do with Bitcoin. We we can actually ask people, why are you holding Bitcoin? What is it? What's the point of doing this? We can. I think we have a much better intuition for what's happening now. Um, so that's one of the big difficulties with the Mangarian theory. I think is that it. You, you can get in, into an endless dispute about what, you know, how money really came about, but we really have no empirical evidence about what people were doing. This is just our best guess to uh, to solve a problem. The Austrians were trying to solve a problem, which is the paradox of money having value. How does it have value at all, and how do we trace it back into the past to figure out how it first got value? It was a paradox that the, uh, the the classical economists of the 19th century really struggled with, and it was Menger who came up with the first um, best guess for how this could be solved. Um, but we're, we're in a, a different situation, I think, now with Bitcoin, which is really useful for helping us test whether that theory that Menger had makes any sense. Yeah, although I do think um, it is important to keep that in mind that they are two different kinds of situations. Um, so in the, in the situation that Menger talks about, um, money emerges for the first time. So the economy changes from a, a barter economy into a money economy. Whereas in the case of Bitcoin, um, we're already in a monetized economy, in a money economy. It's just that now a new good becomes uh, money. So it's sort of an open question, like to what extent insights about the second type of situation can also provide us with insights about the, the first um, type of situation. I will also add that as to the historical accuracy of Menger's explanation, so as to the, the, the question, did it really happen uh, this way historically? You know, it's, it's very difficult to um, yeah, either confirm that or refute that with historical evidence. There's simply very little evidence out there. Although I guess some of the, uh, the critics uh, argue that the historical evidence that is available shows that um, it did not happen this way and that the evidence actually supports the uh, Chartalist uh, theory as opposed to the Mengarian theory. Um, what I find interesting about the question of evidence though is sort of Mises's uh, point of view. Because Mises with his regression theorem essentially argued that money can only arise in this way, that it has to arise on the free market, and that it's impossible for a government to create money uh, if there was no money before. Right. Well, that's an interesting point in itself. Uh, I, I've definitely had disagreements. Uh, that money can only originate in this way is actually not attributable, attributable to Mises, but is attributable, attributable to Rothbard. 
and I think that was his interpretation of the regression theorem, which is that um, there is no other conceivable way in which money can come about, and that the regression theorem is uh, posits a unique way in which money can come about, um, which is different to my interpretation of the regression theorem, which is that this is how money came about, but it is not the exclusive way in which money can come about. Um, I think there are actually several quotes uh, from Mises where he literally says that. Okay. I'm uh, not sure that there are. Uh... I'll trust you on that. I, I've, I'm not aware, that, aware of them. My, my understanding is that this is uh, largely uh, an interpretation of Rothbard, but um, if it is the case that Mises believed that, then I think there is there are deep problems uh, in that theory. Yeah, I think I have them in my uh, my Evernote somewhere. But so in any case, we, we have the uh, Mengarian story and the Mises uh, the the Misesian story, and in the uh, Austrian view, these are complementary uh, to each other. But we think that there are big problems with uh, this Austrian perspective. What would you say is the first big problem? Well, the primary thing I think is wrong is a, a piece of the story which is just not even mentioned in the, in the Austrian account of how money comes about. And so to give a summary of the Austrian account, it, it, it is essentially that you have people living in a state of barter and they have the co a, a problem of coincidence of wants. So one person wants goods from another person, but the goods that that person A has... Uh, person B does not want and will not trade for those goods. And so person A has to look for something that person B wants. And so they look for a good which is more marketable, which is more demanded by a greater fraction of the population. And and so they look for something like gold, which is presumably accepted by more people. And they trade their apples for the gold, and then they use the gold to buy goods from person B, such as oranges. In a, in a way that they weren't able to do before. And so what this does is it tends to make gold even more marketable. Um, and that's the basic account, I think, a, a summary of the Austrian account of how money comes about. The good becomes more and more marketable, and eventually it's money. The problem I have with this is that it doesn't account for the fact that as the good is becoming more and more used, its purchasing power is rising dramatically because more and more people are demanding it. That means that there will be people who are, to me, quite obviously aware that holding that good, whether or not they want to use it for trading, just holding the good for the fact that its purchasing power is rising dramatically is a valuable thing to do. And so people will value the good as a medium of savings, which is that they will hold the good simply because they perceive that it will be more valuable in the future, not because they're trying to complete a trade, but because of its value alone. Uh, and this is, as far as I'm aware, is not mentioned anywhere in the Austrian account of the origin of money. And I think it's an incredibly important aspect to the process of monetization. And it's, it's an important aspect that we can see actually happening with Bitcoin. So the emergence of Bitcoin is useful in a way because it gives us an insight into the process happening before our eyes. And uh, to me, that's the biggest hole. I know you have some other uh, issues with the theory as well, which are very interesting, but that's, that's my main problem with it. 
Yeah, actually, when you, when you put it like that, I just realized that there's uh, a big commonality between that that critique and, and my criticism of uh, the Mangarian story. And it basically comes down to the fact that the Mangarian story doesn't take into account the, the bubbliness of money, the, the price increase that will occur if the demand for it um, as a medium of exchange or in some other um, monetary function increases. And what you're saying is that um, if such an price increase happens, then people will also start to speculate that uh, the price increase, the price will continue to increase, and they will start to hold the good um, for speculative purposes. So not even so much to use for as a medium of exchange right now or in the near future, but as a as a kind of investment because they expect that the um, the price will continue to increase. And what what my critique comes down to is that as this price increase takes place the good becomes more expensive, and that means that it will become less popular in its original non-monetary function, simply because it is now more expensive, and typically when prices of a good go up, the demand for it will go down. So there are like two, um, there are two forces at work there. The price will go up because the demand for it as a medium of exchange goes up, but the demand for the good will also co um, go down because due to the price increase, the demand for it in its original non-monetary form will go down. And this is something that Menger doesn't take into account at all, and also something that I have not heard anybody else mention. While I do think that it's it's a significant issue in, in a scenario like this. Yes, that's that's a really good insight, and I think uh, the, the point you're saying is that that good potentially is an input to a production process. It yeah, could or be, a consumption it, process. It could, yeah, exactly, exactly, a consumption process. So it could be a good, for instance, like wheat, which is used to make bread and is used to make other things. And as that price goes up, people are not going to be willing to pay a lot more for a loaf of bread. So its, it's um, demand for its use will definitely go down as people are using it more and more frequently as money or as a, as a medium of exchange. Yeah, and that leads to the surprising conclusion that it is very unlikely or even impossible for there to be a good in society that is both used, widely used in a non-monetary way um, as well as in a monetary way. And so it's kind of, it puts the uh, whole intrinsic value debate sort of on its, uh, its head. Like it's traditionally assumed that a good will have to have um, yeah, what is called intrinsic value, what I actually mean is a non-monetary role, and intrinsic value is a bit of a confusing term in that respect, so we just continue to use a non-monetary role. So it's generally thought that a good would have to have a non-monetary role in society um, for it to also be able to function in a monetary way, in the absence of government anyway. But what this idea leads to is that it, actually the opposite is the case. It will simply be difficult for a good to be used both in a monetary and in a non-monetary way. The two uses actually work against each other instead of uh, with each other. Yeah, that's a that's a really good insight. And the interesting thing with gold is that its use value, at least historically, was primary as ornamentation or jewelry, and it's it's one particular type of use which might not suffer from uh, a greater price or, or um, uh, you know, a, a higher exchange ratio because as jewelry, something that's more expensive is actually valued even more because of its rarity. It's not quite the same as something like wheat or 
you know, livestock or things of that nature. Uh, so I think gold has a peculiar property that it it could become more marketable and its uh, and its use value could still remain. Yeah, and I think that is probably one of the main reasons that that gold and silver won out. But uh, I, I think it's even been mentioned somewhere that in in fact um, goods become more demanded as jewelry as they as they are scarcer. Uh, it you know it. Gold is more valuable as jewelry than silver is because gold is is a rarer, precious metal, and it's the perception of rarity which really matters uh, for for jewelry and ornamentation. You don't you don't want to create jewelry out of sand or uh, out of good which which are a different segment of the population. If you were to do that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess my my point is that. That particular use de- demand might not be harmed as much as it would for other goods, but the point you make, I think, is is a very good one and would apply um, to to all other goods, uh, cattle or um, wheat or you know any any of these other goods which are primarily demanded uh, for their use value. I agree with you that gold is one of the goods that is special in this regard, that it actually becomes more popular uh, when it becomes more expensive. So gold is one of the very few goods that would uh, not be susceptible to to this problem. Uh, And another type of good that would not be susceptible to this problem is one that has essentially no non-monetary demand uh, for it whatsoever. And that, of course, brings us to, uh, to Bitcoin. Yep. So then gold, like jewelry type stuff, and Bitcoin, yeah, escape the problem that that we just identified. Yeah, absolutely. There's no sort of prior demand which is being harmed because of the monetization of of, uh, Bitcoin. And, you know, my view on gold is that the use value compromises a very small fraction of the demand so that if the monetary component of the demand for gold, uh, that is, people who are holding gold simply because they expect it will go up in value, if the, that demand disappeared, the price of gold would fall dramatically, probably 70 or 80%, perhaps even more. Yeah, so what we're saying then is that the, the speculative value, uh, the demand for it as an um, investment, as a store of value, is what determines by far the, the largest part of the, of the price of gold, of the total demand for gold. Right, and, yes, I agree with that. And uh, I think of it, This is this is why I think uh, calling it, calling what we're talking about the bubble theory of money, is quite accurate because it it really is sort of the price is really floating on speculation alone. Uh, people's belief that that the thing, the good that they're holding, will be more valuable in the future, and so this this almost sounds paradoxical. It's why why would anyone hold this good just in the hope that it would be uh, more valuable in the future and for no other reason? Well, the answer to that question is that there is always going to be a medium of savings which people want to keep their savings in, which is liquid and marketable, which they can exchange easily against other goods. And there's a, a sort of competition in which good is going to win that battle, that race to being the most liquid, the most demanded. And that that battle or that 
choice happens every single day. People have to make the decision, do I hold my savings in gold? Do I hold them in Bitcoin? Do I hold them in dollars? Do I hold them in euros? And you want to be in the medium of savings that most other people want to hold. And so this is really a problem of game theory. Um, you have to try and anticipate what will be the most demanded medium of savings in the future. And part of that is the attributes of the medium of savings. Like what attributes does it have that make it a good medium of savings? Gold has you know, several attributes which are, we all recognize as good for medium of savings. It's easy, easy to verify, it's divisible, um, and it has it's a very long hard to forge. It's very hard to forge. Uh, the supply can't be increased easily. Uh, so it has these properties. And so given we know those properties and it has long history, people are willing to make that bet. Okay, I'm going to hold gold because I think it's going to go up. Or alternatively, if the price drops, say, 30%, then there's a psychological phenomenon where people are like, oh, now it's a bargain, even though there really is no way to determine whether it's a bargain or not because it's not like other assets which produce a stream of income. And you can actually tell whether a different type of asset is a bargain because if a house is generating you know, 30 or 40% of the cost of the house in rental income, then you know it's a bargain because you can buy it and uh, the rental income is going to pay for the house very quickly. But with monetary goods, you don't have that. There is no really objective way to, to measure uh, whether it's a bargain or not. But there is a psychological factor involved where people see the price go up or down and then they make decisions about whether or not they think it's a, a good buy or, or a bad buy and, and whether other people are going to think that in the future. Well, I guess that also brings us to a common criticism of Bitcoin. Maybe that because it has no non-monetary role and its price is pretty much entirely determined by, by speculation or at the very least by the demand for it in a, in a monetary form. But what we're sort of saying now is that this is actually not categorically different from, for example, the case of gold. It's just that gold already has some, um, some price because of its non-monetary role, but everything on top of that follows the same principle as, as Bitcoin valuation does. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think it's very interesting when people criticize Bitcoin and say, well, it doesn't have a use value, so it could potentially go to zero. My, th my thought is that, well, the same is essentially true for gold. It, it could go to essentially zero. It could go to epsilon above zero, which is, you know, whatever small amount of money people are willing to pay just for its use value, which is very, very small. That isn't really an interesting difference between Bitcoin and gold. It's not the use value, which is an explanation for its price. The price is primarily explained by its speculative demand. Yeah, and so in the, in the case of Bitcoin, the, the price may go down all the way to zero, whereas in the, the case of gold, the, the price is unlikely to go to zero and it will because there is always still a non-monetary demand for it. So it may fall from like $1,000 to $100, whereas Bitcoin might fall from $1,000 to zero. But the, the point is that that's actually not, not a very significant difference. Suppose you're an investor and you buy $1,000 worth of gold. The, let's say that the non-monetary um, value 
of that gold is $100, and so the monetary value is $900. And now you also buy $900 worth of Bitcoin. So let's say that all the, non, all the monetary demand for both Bitcoin and gold just disappears completely. So then Bitcoin goes from 900 to zero, and gold goes from 1,000 to 100. So in both cases, there's a $900 loss. But then you might say, well, at least in the case of gold, I still have $100. But that's actually not a very good argument because you already paid for that $100 that you're keeping now when you bought the gold. That was not something, it's not something extra that you uh, retain now. You already spent $100 for that non-monetary uh, demand for gold plus another $900 for the monetary demand. And so it's it's very similar to the case of Bitcoin, where you spend $900 for the, the monetary demand and $0 for the non-monetary demand. In both cases, you lose $900. I see. Yeah, I see your point is that you're you're investing a certain amount of money into the, the non-monetary value, and that will be lost in either case when yeah. if, the, if the bubble bursts for either Bitcoin or gold. Yeah. Uh, I should also say that it's it's also just odd that the whole idea of um, non-monetary role of intrinsic value has played such a large role in people's thinking about money that it, it was always just assumed that um, a money needed to have a non-monetary value otherwise it would never never work and yeah I thought that way for like you know, probably a decade or something as well. It was only like relatively recently in the past couple of years that I started to, to doubt that. And that is one of the cool things about Bitcoin that Zeroff also forces you to uh, to examine these beliefs about money. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a very, very interesting new phenomenon that I my it has completely changed my views on money. And when it first came about my view was that it, it couldn't possibly succeed. Um, there, there are various other things, uh, issues related to Bitcoin. I thought, well, if it's if there's a protocol and it's defined publicly, people can just copy the protocol and make Bitcoin too, or VJ's Bitcoin or Cohen's Bitcoin, and so there'll be, you know, thousands of these things. And why will any of them have any value? And this also alerted me to the fact that uh, there is a network effect. In, with a monetary good, and this is actually a very powerful thing. Uh, this is another aspect of the monetization of a good that I don't think Austrians really focus on very much or talk about, but is very, very important. And Bitcoin has opened my eyes to this because, in fact, there has been lots of copies of Bitcoin that are almost identical to the Bitcoin network. Uh, they, they use very very similar protocols and the code is almost identical, but they don't have much value at all. I mean, their their value is essentially epsilon above zero. And what is important uh, with that is that Bitcoin has a network effect of people who accept it, um, people who will willing to hold it uh, uh, as their medium of savings. It has a network effect of people who are working on the system, the protocol, uh, and people who are trying to uh, keep it up, the miners, uh, the mining part yeah, of the network. Yeah, the security, uh, which is quite essential. 
Yeah, and I think you may you may have written about this or someone wrote about this that there are actually several aspects to this network effect, um, and that they all sort of come together to make it much harder for another uh, clone of Bitcoin to overtake Bitcoin because it would first have to overtake all of these different aspects of the network effect. Um, so it, it's it's really a fascinating uh, new innovation because it really really has changed my mind on on the economics of money um at the same time though we can't really say at this point that bitcoin is already money i mean it's used as a medium of exchange i think is very low i think much of the volume that you see is well speculation um day trading those types of things i think yeah people actually don't really use it very much to buy things. Um, and, well, I guess we both think that that is because of the, the role of speculation and its appeal as a store of value at this point. Yeah. yeah. That, that, the, um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that what you're bringing up uh, raises the very, very interesting question of what is money? How do you define money? Yes, I was um, towards that, huh? And uh, that that in itself is worth answering because Austrians have their own, you know, particular view on what money is, um, and certain Austrians have even more specific views. The, the the Austrian view, actually, it's fairly common. It's not just an Austrian view; it's shared by most economists. Is that money is the generally accepted medium of exchange? That you know, you're in a particular economy or country, and you can expect that it is generally accepted. That's a little bit vague, but you know you can get the drift of what it means. Austrians have the extra uh, particular insight into how money functions in that they say that money is the good in which economic calculation occurs, which is it is the good in which entrepreneurs calculate their profit and loss in. And so if you're a restaurant you will have your input costs in, say, dollars, and you will have your output prices in dollars, and you calculate, which is you subtract your costs from your profits and you uh, um, work out your final profit. And so that's that's part of what I think a lot of Austrians would think of as a very important aspect of money. Uh, it's a function of the unit of account function. The unit of account function is... Yeah, traditionally also mentioned as a function of money, and the ability to perform economic calculation is itself a function of the unit of account function. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think some Austrians would go so far as to say that economic calculation or the unit of account of function can only exist for the generally accepted medium of exchange. It cannot exist for something which is not yet generally accepted. So, for instance, it is impossible that people could calculate in terms of gold or calculate in terms of Bitcoin. I think this is a very interesting and controversial question. Um, I sort of fall on the side of saying calculation can happen before a medium of exchange is generally accepted. So my view is that there are entrepreneurs who accept Bitcoin as payment for services and their costs of their business can be denominated in Bitcoin. They pay for things in Bitcoin. And so they can work out their profits in terms of Bitcoin. And that is essentially what economic calculation is. So I think it is already possible for this to happen. 
and as Bitcoin becomes more widely accepted and used, that it will become more widespread for people to do this. Okay, well, what you say at the end, as Bitcoin becomes more widely used, um, then it's more likely to um, function in economic calculation. That sounds well quite traditional, because in the Mengarian view, the unit of account function um, is a function of the medium of exchange function. It will only emerge um, as a result of it's being widely used as a medium of exchange. And I thought that was exactly what you're arguing against. So I'm a bit surprised that, yeah, you ended up the way you did. Oh, oh, I well, I, I thought my position uh, was contrary to at least some Austrians that, that I'm aware of, which is that uh, economic calculation could only happen in Bitcoin once it's fully money, which is that it is generally accepted and you would, you, you know, you could go to the grocery store and buy a loaf of bread Right with Bitcoin, but until that happens, there's no possibility that economic calculation could happen in Bitcoin. Which is, but I should say that I do not believe that. I think that yeah. argument is incorrect. Yeah, I think like for probably for um, yeah, like a Bitcoin business or something, they may be able to perform calculation in Bitcoin. Um, but I think for people who yeah spend most of their time in a non-Bitcoin economy. Which is by far the largest part of the economy, it yeah. will be it will be difficult. Uh, and it's also interesting to think that when we're thinking about the, the functions of money, yeah, there are some people who say that, for example, the unit of account uh, function or the means of payment function as well, they pre they predated the um, medium of exchange function. So there would be, I think this is part of the the theory that money is an invention of the state, that you would have, for example, uh, debt relations. Okay, so some people owed other people some things. For example, they, they borrowed some uh, wheat or something. And you then had to put in writing or somebody had to keep track of who owed um, what to whom. And you needed a unit of account for that because it would not by any means always be the case that you are able to pay back the person in exactly the, the things that you borrowed from them. So oh, yeah, you have absolutely. some yeah, some other way of paying them back. But then you need a unit of account that tells you how much then you should pay back. Sure, absolutely. And this is actually, there are, you know, I can think of historical examples of this. In the American colonies, they were often short of specie and they would have to pay people back in... Um, barrels of tobacco or or salted fish or things like that. And then the question is, well, how many barrels of tobacco or salted fish should I send uh, for payment of this debt? Um, so in places where there was there's an absence of specie, there's a, sh a shortage of uh, the medium of exchange, they would do this. And, and so, yeah, you're right. There is the question of, well, how much should be sent back? And I think that that is actually a very difficult question to answer, which like the, the medium of exchange, the Mengarian story has it much easier because prices emerge on the market out of market exchanges and their prices are a natural um, and direct result of that. So you don't have to figure out, okay, what is the price of this? They just emerge, they're a social fact. But if you don't have the medium of exchange function for that good, then what is the basis um, on which you say how many things you have to pay back 
because you borrowed these things. Well, this is why this is exactly what the, why there is an importance to liquid exchanges because you know we have the same problem, the exact same problem with Bitcoin because the the problem occurs in that uh, not all goods are saleable in terms of Bitcoin and. And so suppose that I have a good and suddenly I've become interested in, in selling it for Bitcoin. I, uh, I have a car. Let's say I have a car. Um, and I, I want to sell for Bitcoin. I don't know how many Bitcoins I should sell for. Shall I sell it for 10? Shall I sell it for 1,000? How, how do I answer this question? And, and the answer comes from uh, saying, well, I know what the price is in a different medium of exchange. And I have uh, a deeply liquid market in which I can obtain a large amount of bitcoins across this other medium of exchange. So I'll, I'll set the price by just looking at the uh, exchange rate and the current price in the medium of exchange that I'm familiar with to get a bitcoin price. And this is actually how I think it would have happened uh, in, in places where there wasn't uh, specie available, like the American colonies in the in the 18th century, they would have just looked at prices from markets where these things are being sold for actual coin or actual money, and got the prices that way. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense, and yeah, it's interesting that those two situations, the Bitcoin situation and the American colony situation, would indeed be or could be very similar in that respect. I think some um, historians would have a more difficult time using that explanation because they they argue that money actually made markets possible. So before money, there was not even like barter type relations. There were just small communities who had all sorts of different um, practices, gift giving, ritual stuff, um, debt stuff. And so they they don't have the they can't appeal to like a highly liquid market because there was no market, let alone a highly liquid one. And no. so it's more difficult for them to explain how these prices get established. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is one of the perils of uh, trying to construct a theory for the origin of money. Uh, we don't have a way of peering back into the past with any accuracy. Um, what we have now, I think, is useful because we, we have great, great clarity into what's happening with the emergence of Bitcoin that we don't have from the historical past. Um, so I, I'll give you another example of something that I think is now evident uh, as a, a monetary phenomena with Bitcoin. We've talked about the medium of savings and speculation and how uh, the price is, is sort of like a bubble I think this creates a reverse causality as well, so that you imagine a good is being monetized, more and more people are demanding it because they expect that its price is going to rise. And the people who held this good in the beginning, suddenly they're holding something which is vastly more valuable than it was in the past. And this is exactly what has happened with Bitcoin. There are people who owned thousands or tens of thousands of Bitcoin and they acquired them at a, uh, you know, a dollar price of in the cents or low low dollars. So they have huge gains that they're sitting on. 
And they're looking for an outlet for these gains because they're not simply going to hold these gains and not do anything with them. There is a benefit to having more purchasing power that you can increase your standard of living. And so the reverse incentive that is created is that merchants will seek to tap into this increased pool of savings by offering goods and services that are denominated in Bitcoin. And the first merchants to do this will reap the biggest benefit because the people who are sitting on gains will have limited outlets in which to use those gains and those outlets will be the first merchants and they will um, get a windfall from this and this is what's happened there you know numerous merchants who have uh, begun accepting Bitcoin they were the early ones to accept Bitcoin and they've seen a lot of transactional use because of the, the fact that they're the, the first outlets but then that causality the fact that they're accepting Bitcoin increases the demand for other people who potentially want to own Bitcoin because now there are more uses for it as well. People can buy it and use it to, say, buy cupcakes or whatever it is. So these causalities, the speculation and the, the general acceptance in exchange, these two things are tied to each other and the causality sort of feed back from each other. And, and that's something I think we can understand with the, the emergence of Bitcoin, which may not have been so obvious when we were thinking about the past and how perhaps gold arose as money. Well, it may also be that you know it happened differently in the past, and that what is happening with Bitcoin now does not accurately reflect, or is not the same thing that that happened in the past. But sure. even yes. if that is the case, then you know what is currently happening is still an interesting phenomenon. And I find it very interesting what you just said. I, I don't think I've actually thought about it that way before. This sort of the traditional story is that. Uh, money gains in value as it's used as a medium of exchange increases. What we're saying is that a large part of the price increase in the in the case of Bitcoin is due to speculation and its role as a store of value. But what you're saying now is that, yeah, the causality is reversed in the sense that because it increases as a store of value and because the price increases because of that, that actually encourages and increases its use as a medium of exchange because the people who have a lot of coins yeah, need an outlet for them, a way of spending them. And that creates more, well, that makes it interesting for merchants to cater to those people by making it possible to buy their products with Bitcoins. And yeah, once merchants do that, that also creates opportunities for all the other people to buy stuff there. So yeah. I, I like what you're saying that, yeah, it's it's it, it's interesting because then it, it it really tells you what the the speculator has a very important role. They are creating the incentive for merchants and businesses to accept Bitcoin because the speculators are the ones that are driving the price up. The the fact that the price is being driven up is what what it literally means is that there is a greater pool of savings held in Bitcoin, and if there's a greater pool of savings being held in Bitcoin. The market opportunity for entrepreneurs and merchants to tap into that pool of savings has increased. So you could be the first uh, cupcake shop which accepts Bitcoin, and so there's an opportunity to tap into that pool of savings that no other cupcake shop has tapped into. So speculators have a very important role because they are creating this phenomena, and I think they are the 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 bootstrap to this feedback loop. I think the first thing that happens 
is the willingness for someone to say, I will hold Bitcoin because it could potentially be more valuable in the future. And historically, I think this is exactly what happened. The first exchange of a pizza for 10,000 Bitcoins is an exchange where some person said, I am willing to be a speculator in Bitcoin. I am willing to hold this um, you know, in the belief that it's potentially more valuable in the future. Uh, and that bootstraps the process. Then you, you have a, a, a market price established, and that's the first step to getting a liquid exchange established. Um, and ultimately, the, the spread of Bitcoin uh, as a medium of exchange. I think I would add to that that it's not just the, the first cupcake store that accepts Bitcoin. It's not the only cupcake store that will profit from uh, accepting Bitcoin. If you know, there is a large pool of people holding savings in Bitcoin, then you know, subsequent cupcake stores will also want to sell uh, their products to people with that capital. Um, so it's not just like a marketing gimmick or, or anything like that. It's just there's more wealth in Bitcoin now. And so it becomes interesting for all kinds of merchants to sell their stuff for Bitcoin. Absolutely. I guess my point, though, is that if you're the first cupcake store to accept Bitcoin, then you potentially benefit from the ones who come about last because if you accept the bitcoin and you keep and hold the bitcoin yourself then as it becomes more and more widely accepted its uh monetary premium its speculative demand goes up and so you're you are also benefiting from that pool of savings increasing yeah but so did you also just say or um mean that the the first store will profit at the expense of the late covers no, no, I don't think it's at the expense of latecomers. It's just that your benefit will be greater than the latecomers. So in a way, this bubble theory of money, what it's saying is that if you're the first one willing to provide liquidity into a market, which ultimately succeeds in becoming money or the most liquid medium of savings, you will benefit the most. That doesn't mean the person at the end will benefit or is going to lose, it just means that their benefit is going to taper off. And what happens is when a medium of savings becomes generally accepted, the benefit then is not from new people coming in and accepting or holding the medium of savings. The benefit is just the rate of productivity or growth of the economy. So long as that medium of savings, you know, can't be inflated forever, if its value, uh, sorry, if its supply remains constant, as it's true with Bitcoin and, and with gold, their supply is very constant, then the benefit, if you're the last guy who holds gold or who holds Bitcoin, you're holding this Bitcoin and you're just sitting there accumulating the productivity growth of the economy, which is, say, 3 to 5%, which is not huge, but it's also not nothing. Uh, it's not going to be the same as the guy who... Uh, created a mining rig in 2010 and and has this gigantic benefit of getting a lot of bitcoins for a very cheap price, but you are still getting some benefit. That benefit has just plateaued. Yeah, I think sort of the, the general development that you sketched there is correct in the sense that the early adopters gain the most, like through speculation, the value increases and they profit from that, and slowly that sort of tapers off, and the last people won't benefit at all from that speculative increase anymore, but they will still get you know, a medium of exchange in which they can use. So it's, that is also what distinguishes Bitcoin from a Ponzi scheme, where the latecomers have nothing, um, 
and here they have a medium of exchange and it's just they don't profit from any speculative growth anymore but they That's profit right. from having a medium of exchange on they the other a... hand though and you know, we, we've talked about this before like what happens if bitcoin becomes monetized then something else will become demonetized yes. and so there's a massive transfer of purchasing power from for example the dollar to bitcoin so the people who adopt bitcoin after a certain point and were holding dollars for a long time will actually they will see their dollars become worth less and less while they don't have bitcoins yet so they lose purchasing power and you know they will get some bitcoins at the end but the net effect is that they will have lost a lot of purchasing power and the the early adopters have gained that purchasing power so yes. i think it's not that everybody profits in that process of monetization there comes a point before that point um everybody who adopts bitcoin profits but they do so at the expense of everybody who only adopts bitcoin after that point right this is a very very interesting argument and i i generally agree with what you're saying but i there is a caveat uh because as bitcoin is increasing in price savings are being drained from other assets into bitcoin and it the the dollar is actually it, it's it's almost it's confusing because even though things are priced in dollars i don't think many savings are actually in dollars in the sense that the dollar is primarily used as a medium of exchange and not as a medium of savings there are very few people who hold say very large percentages of their savings in dollars you won't find for example a billionaire who holds 100 million dollars worth of their savings in just dollars as in pure cash their savings will be in government bonds they'll be in real estate they'll be in gold they'll be in assets like that just happens to be that they're denominated in dollars and what will happen is as the price of bitcoin increases and becomes money it's those other assets really where the 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 pool of savings are coming from and i would imagine actually if bitcoin is ultimately successful the biggest loser is going to be people who hold gold uh so 50 years from now if bitcoin is a a de facto medium of savings used by you know millions or billions of people around the world the people who will be harmed the most are those who hold most of their savings in gold i think that's a very good point like your first point that there actually are not a lot of people who hold a lot of dollars and so the process that i sketched won't actually affect um, a lot of people because most people have only a very limited um, number of dollars and have their savings in you know actual assets and i th- i think i read somewhere that the majority of dollars is held by foreigners by foreign central banks and yeah i think by foreign central banks and just foreigners and actually there's no um sorry buddy no, i don't, i don't think that's um actually true i think what happens is you have the us which has a trade deficit and those dollars those, those countries accumulate dollars and what happens is that they don't they don't want to hold dollars they hold them in uh us assets they put the chinese government the japanese government they buy, use their dollars to purchase us treasuries so their primary holdings are do- dollar denominated but those holdings are us government bonds That's so that, that that actually might be another area where savings could be sort of drained in the sense that if bitcoin is monetized then perhaps 
probably interest rates would also go up. Uh, gold, the price of gold might be hurt, but also the price of U.S. government bonds would be hurt. Uh, so the the interest rate on long-term U.S. Treasuries is about three uh, percent. If Bitcoin was, you know, very widely held, you could imagine that interest rate could go up to ten percent or twenty percent because the savings from uh, government bonds has drained into Bitcoin, and uh, I, I guess from a, an ideological point of view, as a libertarian, that's a very positive outcome. It means that it's much more costly for the U.S. government to fund its uh, operations, uh, such as you know going to war. That it becomes m- much less feasible for them to do those kind of things. Yeah, that's a good point. Although I guess that would also um, create more opposition from the U.S. government to Bitcoin now. Sure, yeah. But the question about that opposite, the political opposition, is that is is there anyone in the U.S. government who is kind of looking at the bigger picture of, hey, this is something which is, it's a medium of savings that's now competing with U.S. treasuries and, and U.S. dollars. It seems to me that the U.S. government is really not a monolithic entity but a bunch of fiefdoms and each fiefdom has its own particular concern that they might they might not want bitcoin to be used for illegal drug use but it doesn't seem to me that there's anyone in the government who cares about the bigger picture that may be although i get well i would say it's kind of a a risky strategy like if the strategy is based on hoping that they won't find find out or hoping that nobody has the incentives to find out. I think also, like if you're Obama and his staff, they, they obviously have an, interested, have an interest in having as, as big a budget as possible. And so they would have an interest in the process that you just outlined. I mean, if they figure out that that is what may be happening then they have an interest in putting a stop to that because it means that they will have a more difficult time funding themselves. Sure. The question is, the uh, important question is, is it possible that Bitcoin becomes liquid enough and self-sustaining enough that at the point at which someone actually realizes this higher level concern, that it's impossible to stop it from sort of succeeding or sort of feeding on itself because... India is an example where the, the Indian government absolutely detests that a large fraction of savings of Indian people are held in gold because there's a very real detriment to the Indian government of savings being held in gold. It means that interest rates for the Indian government are higher. If those savings were held in Indian bonds, then the government could finance its operations much more cheaply. And so the Indian government has passed all sorts of legislation uh, to try and ban people from buying gold, from importing gold, making it more expensive to buy gold. But they, it, it's incredibly ineffective because pe- people in, in, in India have demanded gold for 5,000 years. It's, it's baked into the culture. It's, it's so deeply rooted that it can't be, uh, it can't be uh, upended by the government. And I think that could potentially happen with Bitcoin too if it becomes so widely used, it will be very hard to get rid of it. Kind of like the internet. I mean, the internet is so valued by so many people, it's not like a government could come in and say, look, this is detrimental to the interests of our government in the sense that people can discuss things freely with each other, so we're going to shut down the internet. It's too deeply rooted in the economy for that to happen now. 
I'm still sort of surprised that that they haven't done that That in the past, like 20 or 25 years, that they haven't intervened in a a more meaningful way in in the Internet. And that, Uh you know, it has become so you can't stop it anymore now. I mean, it has become such a big part of the economy. You can still like influence and hinder it in, in various ways. But, yeah, I'm surprised that they haven't put up more that they didn't put up more resistance to um, the rise of the internet. Um, and yeah, so that would bode well for Bitcoin, but I don't know how far the, uh, the comparison would, would go. Mm-hmm. I, I should also add that with Bitcoin, and uh, yeah, I mentioned that before, we've come a long way, but we're still nowhere near it's actually being, well, I'm not going to say used as money because there are different functions of money, but it's not a big part of people's lives at this point. Yeah. So everything, like to the extent that we're using Bitcoin as a way of critiquing other theories, and to the extent that we do that thinking, well, Bitcoin is or will become a money, then yeah, we would still be very vulnerable to criticism because it's not at all guaranteed that Bitcoin or anything like it um, will actually emerge as yeah, as a true money or with a lot of monetary functions. Um. Yeah, yeah, but the, the the great thing that we have is that we get to observe the first stages of a good in the process of what we believe is monetization. And so we have we have insight into what that process looks like that we I don't think we had in the past. And insight into a process which is a market process. We do know about currencies which have come into being through state intervention. So the euro, for instance, uh, we we do have knowledge and experience of that, but we don't have knowledge of an incipient market-based currency. And so Bitcoin gives us a very, uh, it gives us a unique window into what that process looks like that we didn't have before. Yes, but only to the extent that it then later or something like it becomes money. Because if, well, critics could say what you're seeing now is not a process of monetization. It's some speculative um, bubble scheme. And, you know, if it all comes crashing down in a year, then, you know, it's not clear that what we witnessed was actually the early stages of monetization. It could have been something else. I agree with that, except that that... I would I, I would agree with that argument only if the crash happened as a market-based phenomena. Yes. If the crash if the crash happens because uh, the government destroys Bitcoin, I do not think that is the case. And it's it's kind of like saying you know someone's building a house and you get to observe them and see how the house is being constructed and whether they're doing a good job. And if someone comes along and burns down the house, that doesn't really tell you much about whether the construction was good or bad. Um, yeah, no, I agree with that. But so, yeah, so I agree that, you know, if it's government interference, then that doesn't negate what was actually happening. But if Bitcoin sort of crashes and it's due to market forces, then that does question whether this really was a process of monetization or just something else. I, yeah, I would agree with that, and um, I guess my view is that if there was no interference, if there was no restrictions on the activities people have with using Bitcoin, I think it would be far more monetized than it already is. I think the biggest restriction uh, on, on um, the monetization
monetization of Bitcoin is regulations which are preventing the banking system from uh, allowing people to exchange their fiat currencies for Bitcoin. If those restrictions went away, I think the price of Bitcoin would be an order of magnitude higher. I think it's around, it's back to $600 now. I, I, if, if the US government were to come out and say all banks are allowed to, uh, uh, let people exchange their, their dollars for Bitcoin, I think in a matter of a week the price would go up like maybe tenfold. And you think that, you know, if that were to, if the price would go up, then it would be not so much because Bitcoins are especially useful for most people right now, because I, I don't think they are, but because people speculate that it will become the money? Yeah. It, first of all, it would be because more savings could enter Bitcoin. The price is just a reflection of how much savings have moved from some other asset into Bitcoin. And the difficulty is that, that the pipe in which that pool of savings can flow into Bitcoin is severely restricted. And I think that if that pipe was widened, Bitcoin would go up and uh, that there would be a very quick draining of savings. And I, so, so I guess to get back to your question about the medium of exchange, I, I think that's not really what's happening. I think it's people moving into a medium of savings which uh, they perceive other people will want. And that is something that feeds on itself. It's, it's kind of a, it's almost like a pyramid scheme that could go on forever until it's fully monetized, at which point the benefits of jumping into it are, are less than if you'd done it earlier on. Yeah, I think that's a nice way of putting it, like a pyramid scheme that could work uh, because yeah. it transforms into something else at the end. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a pyramid scheme where at the end you have a medium of exchange which is really useful and excellent and is superior to in every possible way to dollars or gold because it lets you send value from one place on Earth to another place instantly. That's something that has never existed in the history of the world and that's a profoundly important innovation in Bitcoin. Yes, but I mean, Ripple can do that as well. With Bitcoin, the thing is that it has an innate currency. And the question is, why would, why would so many more people invest in Bitcoin if like all government interference is stopped? Like, why would so many more people invest a lot of money in it? And you say because, well, so I'm not sure. Do you say because they think that other people will do it and because it will only get bigger in the future? Or because yes. it is a way in which people can transfer value instantly to anybody in the world? Well, the, the transferring value to anyone in the world is is a comparative advantage. It's, a, it's an advantage that Bitcoin has over other mediums of exchange, which benefits it at the margin when people are making a decision of which medium of savings should I put my, my savings into. That helps it at the margin, but that alone is not, I think, the primary factor. The primary factor is that you want to be in the medium of savings that everyone else is in. And so this is a game theory problem. And and the Nash equilibria for this problem is that people rush into one medium of savings. And if there's no restrictions, this would happen very, very quickly. Uh, this is an argument that's been put forth by the blogger um, Mencius Moldbug and his argument, he made this argument a long time ago that there would be a spontaneous monetization of gold. He predicted this in 2006. Uh, that hasn't 
turned out to be the case, but there are a lot of restrictions on doing this. The, the, the government puts on gold, uh, which are much harder for it to put on Bitcoin. Um, but but my point is, if, if it's a problem of game theory, it's it's really a matter of people figuring out where other people are going, and when and when that snowball starts rolling, it gets bigger and bigger, faster and faster, and then eventually everyone is in one medium of savings immediately. This is in I'm talking about the theoretical world where there's no restrictions on on movement of capital. No, I see what you're saying, and I understand that it's a game theoretic problem, and that. That also means that it would happen very fast if it if it happens. Yeah. But what I'm less clear about is, okay, so people move into that medium of savings because they think other people will do as well. But there has to be sort of an ultimate basis for them thinking that other people will as well. And that would have to do with that, you know, it's also a superior medium of savings and medium of exchange. Yeah. It's those advantages on the margin which help it get there. So with gold, you know, it's verifiable. Um, uh, it, it's easy to transport. Um, it's divisible. Those are all advantages gold has over, say, um, cows or sheep or wheat. Uh, and so in the process of this sort of game theory problem, people will be considering those advantages as well. Like, why why would I want to use a medium of savings that I can't take across borders? Well, so if that's true, then I'm that's going to make certain people decide to use Bitcoin rather than gold. Um, and so those different advantages are going to be play a part in people's decisions in which which direction they go in this game theoretic problem. Well, then one question would be: Are those advantages that Bitcoin has compared to the dollar or to gold? enough to make people believe that it could eventually be the medium of exchange and that they should get in now because everybody else will get in as well. I mean, if there are only very marginal benefits to Bitcoin, then it doesn't seem likely that people would start to um, switch from dollars to Bitcoins. Yeah, that uh, I think that's a good question because there, there must it, the advantages must be big enough that people are willing going to take the risk of speculating on it and we we know that gold is a seven trillion dollar market which means that even even though gold is incredibly hampered by the way governments treat it there's still a huge pool of savings in gold um so actually gold has disadvantages compared to the, the u.s dollar and other fiat currencies it's very, very difficult to transmit gold, whereas transmitting dollars is relatively easy. So uh, something like gold can maintain a large speculative component, even if it doesn't have all of the advantages over the dollar. It has some disadvantages, while it also has some advantages. The advantages being that it's not, uh, it's not controlled by a government and its supply is fixed. That's a huge advantage gold has over the dollar. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that the advantage has to be gigantic, but it does have to have some comparative advantage relative to what it's competing against. And I think in the case of Bitcoin, the comparative advantage is actually very large. The the innovation of being able to send value uh, at a distance is is so new, never existed before, that I think it, it's a huge comparative advantage which will help Bitcoin a lot and which will always have 
mean that there will be a market price for Bitcoin, or at least if Bitcoin does not succeed, there will be some uh, digital crypto cryptographic cu currency which will have a market price simply because it affords people the ability to, to move value without moving something physical. Uh, this, this has advantages for people who are in repressive countries. It has advantages for... Uh, um, you know, charitable donations and uh, remitting money to family in other countries. Uh, I mean, th those things are all rather marginal. And also, yeah, again, Ripple can do many of those uh, of those things. But what, but what I find interesting is that I think that's a good point that you make. Like the fact that so many that the market for gold is so huge right now, despite a lot of restrictions and despite the fact that gold also has some distinct disadvantages but the fact that the market for gold is so big nevertheless that is essentially what makes you optimistic about bitcoin because there's no essential difference between bitcoin and gold in terms of like it doesn't matter that the one has like a non-monetary role and the other doesn't yeah um, and bitcoin doesn't have some of the disadvantages that gold does have and so it's superior to gold and so there's no reason why in the absence of government regulation it would not become at least as big as gold yeah i think so and that's a uh quite a dramatic statement if you think about it because the the market cap of gold is a thousand times bigger than the market cap for bitcoin so if if you're a speculator that's a very interesting thing to consider that you have a you have a speculative bet which is it's asymmetric in the sense that if you put in a hundred dollars, hey, you could lose your hundred dollars. But what is the potential upside? The potential upside is that gold becomes a medium of savings as important. Sorry, Bitcoin becomes a me Bitcoin becomes a medium of savings as important as gold. And and if that is the case, then you could make a thousand x on your investment. So it's a very compelling case for thinking of Bitcoin as as Maybe not a primary investment in a portfolio, but something that is like a kind of like a lottery ticket. You put a few percent of your your assets or your wealth in Bitcoin, and you hope that it will succeed in the future. Yeah, although like the people after you who invest in Bitcoin will have to do it for at least somewhat different reasons. They won't make as big a bet. Oh yeah, because you know what that that's already true, right? So if I put money into Bitcoin. I'm the potential upside to me now is smaller than the person who put money into Bitcoin when it was say 10 cents. But the person who put money into Bitcoin when it was 10 cents did so when it was incredibly difficult to obtain Bitcoin, when it was very obscure, there weren't liquid exchanges, um, when it was really just a toy and it hadn't been battle tested, hadn't people weren't even really sure if the protocol was as secure as we are now. Um, so it, to me, it makes sense. There's in, in a way, I think the, the, uh, the risk is lower. The reward is lower, but the risk is also yeah. lower. Also, those people may have already cashed out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of them have, and I'm sure a lot of them have regretted doing that along the way. Yeah, I guess it's, uh, yeah, it's difficult to, uh, to time. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna write that, that point that you made about, uh, gold being so big despite all these disadvantages and that is sort of the main reason why you think that bitcoin could become 
really big as well. I'm going to write that down because I, I hadn't made that direct connection uh, yet. And so that would sort of show that it doesn't take like huge advantages that Bitcoin must have over other over dollars or over gold to actually become really big. Yeah, and it's important to realize, I think Bitcoin does have huge advantages, but I think it's also important to recognize that Bitcoin is much more difficult to suppress than gold. Gold is a physical object, and uh, you know there is episodes in history where gold was confiscated. Um, the U.S. government confiscated people's gold in 1933. Bitcoin is much more resistant to that, that kind of thing, which is, an, is an, another advantage in and of itself, another comparative advantage. So gold is much more able to be restricted by uh, um, legal tender laws and things like that. Um, so that Bitcoin can be used as a medium of exchange much more easily than gold can. Uh, so I guess my point is that the disadvantages gold has uh, relative to the dollar uh, are exacerbated even more because it's easy to enforce those disadvantages that are created by a government. Yeah, you're saying that the disadvantages that gold has compared to the dollar are greater than Bitcoin has compared to the dollar. That's right, yeah. Okay, so I guess that that's pretty pretty good news. <laughs> well, I guess also one thing, I don't know how important that is, but I guess central banks also have a lot of gold, so they have some interest uh, in gold, and they also prop up demand to some extent. Yeah, well, that's that's you know a lot, very large part of the the monetization or the the speculative demand for gold. The fact that its price is so much higher than its its use demand would. Uh, com command is because of central banks. They are part of the monetization of gold. And if central banks were to say, hey, we don't want any of our gold anymore, I think the price of gold would fall dramatically. Uh, I'm not sure what the private holdings of gold are versus central bank holdings, but I know the central banks hold a gigantic amount of gold. That's an interesting question. Like, in a sense, then, gold is actually yeah, government-supported in a way. Yeah, it is. I mean, you, as, for comparison, there was a point at which the government supported silver as well, and silver had uh, a, a monetary premium. It was held by central banks, and there was a historical ratio of gold to silver of about 15. One ounce of gold would get you 15 ounces of silver. But silver has been completely demonetized in the sense that no central bank holds silver in reserve. And now the ratio of gold to silver is much, much higher because of that. So if it were the case that governments no longer held gold in reserve, I think the price would be much, much lower. Yeah, that's a good point. And this may also be a good point to, uh, to end the conversation on, as we've, uh, we've talked for well over an hour already. I think it was a very good uh, talk, and it would also be good if we could talk some other time about some of the other uh, issues involved in uh, the relation between Bitcoin um, and the Austrian view on the uh, origins and nature of money, thinking specifically about uh, about the regression theorem. Uh, we'll do another. We'll do another one devoted purely to the re regression theorem and why it's wrong. <laughs> yes. Okay. Very good. Then uh, we'll talk again sometime.